Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, people of God. The Lord is with you. I have clear memories as a teenager uh, around 1968 of uh, the beginning of what came to uh, be known as the worship wars. It started in Baptist churches in the great debate about whether guitars and drums should be allowed in the sanctuary. And uh, I think the catalyst for that conflict was the appearance of what was probably the first youth musical, Good News by Bob Oldenburg. Uh, That may not have been the first one, Jacob, but it was pretty early. And uh, there are stories told of that time of pastors getting up and unplugging guitars and chasing the youth choirs out of the sanctuary. That didn't happen in our church, but apparently it happened in places. Worship, it seems like, is something worth arguing about and even fighting for. I've collected some cartoons over the years that I like that remind me about this. Here's a couple of them I like. Uh, Here you have a fellow showing his, let's see, where is he? There he is. I got that scar from the chairman of the board during the second battle of guitars in the sanctuary back in 71, he says. And then uh, here's a church with, I guess, what could be called charisma phobia. Uh, No raised hands. Uh, Then confused church member here. They're putting choruses in the hymn books and projecting hymns on the screens, it's getting so I can't remember what I'm not supposed to like. <laughs> and uh, this one, this is for Jacob. I tried to tell him not to change the order of service. <laughs> well, Episcopalians argue over changes in the Book of Common Prayer when those come along. Catholics argue over the place of Latin in the Mass, and uh, Baptists go after each other over hymns and choruses. And actually, the situation is uh, more serious than humorous in many times, even though it remains somewhat ridiculous. Uh, Christianity Today wrote an article, and you can find lots of these if you just Google the phrase worship war. But Christianity Today wrote, uh, if your church has split over worship, you have plenty of company. And in those congregations that have not split, there's too often a festering, unresolved conflict over the music used in worship, the choice of hymns or songs, the order of service. These so-called worship wars have been extensively reported. It's not an uncommon thing. And the truth about worship is that uh, we've been fighting over worship since the time of Cain and Abel, you know, animal or vegetable sacrifice. That goes back a long way and one brother killed another. There's a story in John chapter 4 that I think takes us to the heart of the matter, and we'll spend some time with it there. It's a familiar story of Jesus and the woman in Samaria. Jesus and his disciples had been in Jerusalem. They were going back to Galilee, and John chapter 4 said Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, that 
had to is not a geographical necessity. Many, many, maybe most Jews traveling from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north crossed the Jordan River, went up the other side to avoid Samaria, and crossed back in in Galilee. But Jesus had to was a moral had to. It wasn't a geographical one. It was necessary for his mission and ministry to go through Samaria and to take his disciples and to meet with Samaritans. And so he comes through Samaria and stops at a well in Sychar, Jacob's well, and sits down. It's noon and sends his disciples off to go find some kind of food. I don't know where they thought they would find kosher food in Samaria because Jews and Samaria, Samaritans just didn't get along. But Jesus sat down there alone and a woman comes to the well to draw water specifically, it says. She brought her vessel to come and draw water. And when she got there, this Samaritan woman is addressed by Jesus. He said, woman, would you give me a drink? And she can tell he's Jewish. And she says, ha, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? He was violating all kinds of things at that point. A man talking to a woman in public, a Jew talking to a Samaritan, asking for a drink out of one of the vessels that a Samaritan had drunk out of. And uh, he said, well, it, you know, if you knew who you were talking to, which you clearly don't, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water so that you wouldn't have to come to this well. And she sort of mocks that. She said, uh, you don't have anything to draw with. The well's deep. How are you going to get living water? Where's this flowing water you're talking about going to come from? He said, no, no, I'm talking about the water of life. That if you drink it, you never get thirsty again. And that's when she sort of sarcastically says, why don't you give me some of that water so I don't have to keep coming back here to the well every day? And Jesus said, okay, I will. Go call your husband, tell him to come with you, and I'll, I'll give you that water. She said, well, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you're being honest with me. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with right now is not your husband, is he? And that's when she sort of says, let's get off my personal life and talk about religion. So she said, I, I perceive you're a prophet, and I have a religious question to ask you. Jesus pointing out her life with uh, these men, he wasn't condemning her. He was just letting her know that he knew that she was a thirsty person. She had come to the well to get physical water, but there was a thirst deep in her life that she had not yet quenched. She was trying to quench it with relationships, and that wasn't working. People try to quench that thirst, and we try to quench that thirst in our life with so many other things. We can do it with success. We can do it with drugs. We can do it with alcohol. We can do it with sex. We can do it with uh, popularity and power. There's so many ways we try to quench that thirst, but it's like drinking seawater. It just never quenches the thirst. And she, thirsty, came to the well, and Jesus pointed out her thirst and said, the water I'm going to give you is going to quench that thirst that has driven you from one relationship to another over all these years. And she says, sir, you're a prophet. So the story picks up in verse 19. She said, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
Yet a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that when the Messiah comes, who is called the Christ, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. It wasn't a bad question she raised. Where are we supposed to worship? It's not irrelevant. If God is the source of living water that quenches life's deepest thirst, where do we go to drink? Is it Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? She said, our fathers worshiped at this mountain. The Samaritans came about as a, a race of people because nine centuries or so before Christ, the Assyrians had invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and they had carried away many of those people to other countries to live and they had brought people from other countries to live there. And so what ended up happening in the north there around Samaria was a very mixed race of people and their religion became very syncretistic as well. And so they were looked upon by the Jews who themselves were carried off to exile from Judah and then brought back. They were looked upon as sort of half-breeds and heretics because they weren't pure race and they worship, their worship was contaminated. So they weren't allowed to worship in Jerusalem and they built a temple up on Mount Gerizim. They used the five books of Moses as their authority, but no other words from any of the prophets. And so she's got a different view of worship and religion than Jesus. And where are we supposed to worship? Jerusalem, where you Jews say we should worship or here on Mount Gerizim? What is it? Where do we go to drink? What's the nature of true worship? If people differ in their understanding of worship, who's right? Week after week, people gather in this room over at uh, TriPoint, in churches all around the city, across the country. And when we come to worship, we bring with us our water pots. We come as thirsty people. Lots of things indicate our thirst. We are struggling with family needs, sometimes wrestling with marriages, worried over debts, despairing about the future, not clear about where things are going in our world, scared of dying and scared of death, frightened by the possibility of economic downturn or job losses, defeated by various addictions or habits that seem to be getting the best of us and ruining life, sometimes lonely and ways we can't even express it, aching over grief that others by now have gotten past, guilty over mistakes and sins in our life, longing for some sense of meaning and purpose to our life that we can't quite put our finger on. There are a lot of ways that thirst shows up. And we come to worship with our water pots and we want our thirsts quenched. The list goes on and on. And somehow we sense that in worship there might be a well from which we can drink. But if we're going to find a drink that actually slakes the thirst of our soul, we have to encounter God. Our worship has to be an authentic encounter with the living God. I can tell you nothing superficial will quench those thirst. No music of one sort or another, no musician, no poet, no prayer, no preacher, nothing will do it. We need an encounter with the risen Christ. He is the one who offers living water. So the question of genuine worship remains, what is the truth about worship? What does it mean to worship? 
The question the woman raises is a good question. How do you get it right? Jerusalem or Gerizim, your place or mine? Is it about a certain place, a certain style? Do you have to perform or do you just sit quietly? Is it something that happens to you or something you do? Are you supposed to be loud and active or quiet and contemplative? How do you get it right? And you think that after all these years of doing this as Christian people, I mean, not just our years, we've been doing it for 2,000 years, uh, we, we would have figured that out. But it's something to be learned all the time because we're dealing with God, with God. The truth about worship is that authentic worship is not about focus on anything external like a form or a place, but it is about a focus on the eternal God himself. That's the truth. Gordon MacDonald says that human beings, Christian people, have a variety of sort of leading instincts toward God. You and I don't all speak the same language when it comes to God. Some of us find ourselves, he said, uh, move toward God when we encounter the aesthetic, the beautiful, uh, beautiful music, beautiful art. Beauty is what draws us to an awareness of God's presence. Others of us are very much more experiential. We like joy and excitement and movement and and shouting and uh, noise and all of that. And, And others are more activists. We like accomplishments. We like serving, doing justice, working in the world, feeding the hungry, doing things like that. And in that process, we encounter God. For others of us, our leading instinct is contemplative. We like to be quiet and still and listen and not have it interrupted by anything. Others of us are more like students. We like truth. We like Bible study, like in-depth visit into the Scripture. We think that heaven's probably going to be an eternal Bible study with Jesus as the teacher and the apostles as discussion group leaders. And that's the way that we encounter God is through encounter with the richness of his truth. And others are more relationalist. We, we like to be with other people. And somehow in the community of faith is where we seem to encounter God. The human tendency is to associate God with some limited bit of human experience and think that that's the right way. The forms that we most like and that are most familiar to us. But truthfully, that's a kind of idolatry. That puts a human construction up and says, this is how you encounter God. We erect a form when God is spirit and is not to be contained with any form. Jesus said, genuine worship is not concerned with what takes place externally, nor where it takes place externally, but an encounter with God. He said, woman, the hour's coming when neither... In Jerusalem, nor in this mountain, will you worship God. Because God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We've got to enter into God's realm, not set up our own and expect that God is going to be contained in that. You know, it's clear that you could be in a religious place like a church or a temple. You could be doing religious things like singing hymns or listening to a sermon or offering a sacrifice and not worshiping God at all. That's clearly possible. It's also possible that you could be in a very non-religious place, say out in a field tending sheep and have a personal encounter with the living God as did David and Amos and probably lots of others along the way, the shepherds the night the angels announced the birth of our Lord. The initial question of the woman was, where's the right place to worship? And she was focused on this external question. But the externals are not the issue. 
ever when it comes to worship. Never. Elijah, the prophet of God who was in deep depression, found himself uh, hiding from Jezebel in a cave on Mount Horeb. And God comes to encounter Elijah. He has a real encounter with God. But first, he has to discard a lot of the externals. First Kings 19 says, The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. None of those externals, earthquakes, wind, fire, contained God. Uh, none of them could. And to focus on the externals is to gen generally miss the encounter. Contemporary worship wars have divided churches with their focus on externals. Our preferences for worship forms, whatever they are, our preferences are mere externals. God is not found in the anthem sung by the hundred-voice choir, nor in the clapping of hands and strumming the guitar. God is not found in the perspiring preaching of the Pentecostal, nor in the cold reading of a manuscript by Jonathan Edwards neither in the air molecules vibrating in the pipes of a majestic organ or in the electrons flowing through the speakers of an electric bass. None of those. Neither in the hymnal nor the screen is God found. God is spirit. He's encountered by the responsiveness of the human being to his presence and in that alone. All else are externals. And to reduce worship to my preferences is to erect an idol and to ignore the community of brothers and sisters placing my wants and my needs above that of all others. The significant thing about worship is it involves an encounter with the living God. If we don't meet with God, we walk away just as thirsty as when we came in. We need to meet with God. Our water pots are once more filled with the water that causes us to thirst again. And a song, a sermon, some advice... We walk back to the streets and we're just as weary and thirsty when we go back out as when we came in if we don't encounter God in worship. The issue is spirit, meeting God in his realm, personally encountering God. Genuine worship focuses on what happens between God and the worshiping community. That's the focus. That's the truth about worship. It's also true that authentic worship means that we approach God as God has revealed himself and not out of our ignorance and superstition. Jesus, in his conversation with this woman, said, we Jews worship that which we know. You Samaritans are worshiping that which you do not know. They had a limited understanding of God's revelation of himself, just the first five books of Moses, not the prophets, not the Psalms, not the writings. And God had continued to reveal himself and was revealing himself even in Jesus. And he says to the woman, you've got such a partial knowledge of the one you're worshiping. You need to worship in truth. The more you worship God as God has revealed himself, the more authentic the worship, the more I know who you truly are and you know who I truly am, the better our relationship is possible. But if I'm ignorant of who you are or you're ignorant of who I am or what I think or I of you, 
relationship becomes muddy, doesn't it? It's the same with our relationship with God. We take seriously God's revelation. God is spirit, Jesus said in verse 24. Spirit is God's way of being. It's not saying God is a spirit. It's God is spirit. It's not a statement about his essence, but about his holiness, his transcendence, his difference from us. Spirit is God's realm. And when we come to worship, we enter into God's realm. We enter into spirit. It's necessary that those worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And that's why being spirit, God is not limited to this form or that form when it comes to how we might encounter him. God revealed himself as Father, Jesus says, verse 21, 23. The Father seeks those who will worship him. The Father, we worship out of a new relationship with God that we know now. We have, John 1, 12, it, it said that as many as believed in him, to them he gave the authority to become children of God, even to those that believe on his name. We worship not out of superstition, but out of a relationship with him. Pity the person who still comes to Worship, thinking I've got to go to worship because of what will happen if I don't. I've heard that jokingly, but only half-jokingly along the way. Had three flats this week on my car. Should have been in church on Sunday. You think there's a connection between those two things? God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God is father. He loves you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He's not puncturing your tires. He's got other things to concern himself with. We worship in truth when we worship God as Redeemer. Jesus says, salvation is of the Jews. I am here seeking you. I came here to meet you, he says to this woman. He is the shepherd who is out after the one lost sheep. You've never, you may think you seek God, but you never seek God a day in your life. God is seeking you. To say that we seek God is like thinking that bank robbers are seeking the police. God is after us. He pursues us. He loves us. We come to worship. We don't have to invoke his presence and ask him to come. He was waiting for us. God seeks those who will worship him, Jesus said. Ultimately, the more we know about the person we worship, the more authentic our worship is. We don't want to worship selectively or ignorantly or superstitiously. Truth is an important element of what we do. So it's important that we be thoughtful about the words that we use in worship. The words to our hymns and songs matter far more than does the beat or the tune or the instrumental accompaniment. The words matter that we sing, that we pray, that we speak in worship because we worship in truth. We listen to scripture read. We want to represent the truth about God that's been revealed to us in, in scripture and in Christ. The key to genuine worship is somehow to hold those things together, spirit and truth, spirit and truth, not one or the other. Some churches specialize, I think, in generation emotion. They worship in spirit. The platform folks are experts in moving people to tears or to laughter and to manipulate emotions. And gradually, uh, you, you begin to think that I've had a, I've had, I've worshiped if I felt certain things when I leave. But in time, a law of diminishing returns kicks in. It's only, you know, the stories have to get more and more sentimental. They have to be more and more emotion drawn. The, the songs have to get louder and louder, and stories have to be more dramatic, and songs and preaching more histrionic, and you have to keep people having emotional responses. And that worship is often shallow, artificial, rarely reflective. It has little to do with the mind. It produces people who over time have little rootedness in truth, 
little authentic encounter with God. We sort of become worship junkies. We go to the church that'll supply us with those things we most want. But we fill our water pots with stuff that leaves us thirsty. I'd call that scarecrow worship, if it only had a brain, you know? On the other hand, there are some churches that focus on cognitive correctness. We got to get it all right. They're careful to recite the right creeds and distribute reams of exegetical information about Scripture and make sure the prayers are crafted just right. And, and yet, the head and the spirit don't get connected sometimes. It's all cerebral, all up here. And no one's ever so moved that they actually move to do anything different. It's just filling our heads and our notebooks. And those kind of folks that worship that way may be quick to spot theological error, but the unspoken truth is that they're a little bit bored with it all altogether. Worship is dry. It doesn't connect with their hurts and their desires, and it rarely generates awe or healing or deep praise. We walk away with our water pots still empty. That's 10-man worship that only had a heart. But true worship is not either or, it's both and. Spirit and truth, spirit and truth. Encountering God as God has revealed himself. And the third truth about authentic worship I want to mention this morning is that it learns true worship depends on the grace of God for the encounter with God, not our puny human efforts to please God. There's a rabbi that had been teaching his students that experiences with God are not something that we can achieve or generate or plan. He called them spontaneous moments of grace, almost accidental. One of his students said that if God realization is just accidental, why do we work so hard on all these spiritual practices? And the rabbi said, so that you can be as accident prone as possible. We want those accidents in our life. What does it mean to worship in truth? Truth means coming to the Father in the only way that he's offered. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. It is Jesus-focused worship that is worship in truth. Truth is that which has brought us to Jesus. He, God made flesh and John says in John chapter 1, verse 17, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's only by knowing the truth that we're set free. And Jesus appeared in the world to bear witness to the truth. And he sent his Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth to keep pointing us to this truth of redemption that is found only in Jesus Christ. True worship focuses on Jesus. I have been in Christian worship services, not at Trinity, thank the Lord. In Christian worship services, that Jesus' name was not mentioned in any song, scripture, or anything until I spoke his name in the sermon. And the, the songs could have been love songs. They were full of pronouns. We could have been singing about our girlfriend or our boyfriend, our husband or our wife. But Jesus is the center of Christian worship. We don't need to back away from that in any way at all. He is the truth. And when we worship in spirit and truth, it is Jesus that we focus our attention on. And so Jesus here says, it is through this that we learn to worship. Born of the spirit, born into the kingdom, children of the heavenly father, we worship. Amy Carmichael wrote this. She said, 
I believe that if we are to be and do for others what God means us to be and do, we must not let adoration and worship slip into second place, for it is the central service asked by God of human souls. Its neglect is responsible for much lack of spiritual depth and power. Perhaps we may find here the reason why we so often run dry. We do not give time enough to what makes for depth, and so we are shallow. A wind, quite a little wind, can ruffle our surface. A little sun and all the moisture in us evaporates. It should not be so. So did you bring an empty water pot with you today when you came? Pretty sure you did. Did you come to hear some music and a talk or to meet with the living God? It's the former, then pick up your water pot and go home. Um, we're almost done, but you're going to be thirsty again before you know it. If you came to meet with the living God, the seeker, the Father, the Holy One, through His Son, Jesus Christ, there's the possibility that you can taste the living water that will make uh, the days just ahead of you as you walk from this place, days in which your thirst is not so deep. You reflect on Him, sing His praise, listen to His word, yield your life freshly to Him. You worship in spirit and truth. And if that's the case, you can do exactly what the woman did. John says at the end of the story, after she had spoken with Jesus, she left her water pot and went back to the village. It's that abandoned water pot that is evident she's had an encounter with the one who gives her the drink so she never has to thirst again. If we've met God when we come to worship, we can leave our water pots, our thirst, and go out into the world having been quenched by something deeper. Let's pray together. Lord, um, we are uh, novices at all of this. We want to meet you together. We want to be with you together. But it means abandoning so many things as we walk through the door, including our judgments and our preferences. And we enter into a place where the most important presence in the place is you, and that we turn our hearts to you and we attend to you and focus our attention on you and on these wonderful brothers and sisters that have come with us to be in this place with you. Help us to learn to do that better, Lord, that we might meet you as you long for us. Do you seek us to be your worshipers? And we want to respond to that. We ask in Christ's name, amen. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.